I wanted to cheer you up just before I read something that's not quite so cheery. <clears throat> not the Bible. I read this in the Times during the week. So um, just, just to explain, this is, this is the last talk in the series on Ephesians. Ah... Uh, And um, actually, I would recommend, now we're at the end, although this isn't the end passage because Donna preached that last week, and so you're getting the bit that we've missed out, uh, which is Ephesians uh, 5, 21 to 33. So if you want to be finding out in your Bibles or your tablets or your, your phones, uh, feel free to do that. And um, so uh, sometimes our timetable doesn't work out strictly chronologically just like the Bible, really. And uh, so we've jumped around a little bit. So you're, get, but so you're getting the last bit of Ephesians, although it happens to be chapter 5 rather than chapter 6, because you will know your Bible so well and know that there are only six chapters in, in Ephesians. Okay, but uh, I read this in the Times uh, during the week. 1.8 million children of unmarried couples suffer pain of split. The trend away from marriage towards cohabitation has cost almost 2 million children the chance of growing up with both parents living at home, according to research. A study found that since 1980, 1.8 million children have been born into unmarried parents, born, sorry, born to unmarried parents whose relationship broke down before they had reached 15. Over the same period, the proportion of children born to married couples has fallen from 88% to 53%. So that means that only half the children in our country are being born into married relationships. Three quarters of couples who marry before having their first child stay together, compared with 31% of cohabiting couples. So that's, um, to put that in percentages, that's 75 as opposed to 31 the Marriage Foundation says there is a good chance that if the cohabiting parents had got married before the birth of their first child, they might be still together. As the trend away from marriage continues, more and more children are born into families where the parents' commitment to one another is unclear or ambiguous, said Harry Benson, director of the foundation which carried out the research. The result is that more children will undergo the trauma of family breakdown. By sidestepping the big decision to commit to public to each other, far too many parents lack the stability required to weather the various storms that life and child raising in particular throws up. The think tank believes the act of getting married, where couples discuss their future, then make a public and legal promise to stick together, changes the dynamic of the relationship, making it less likely they will split up. We've come a long way from the Bible, haven't we? But uh, people are discovering its truth. While long-life committed cohabiting relationships can, of course, provide children with the stability they need, alas, they are rare. Cohabiting couples make up only 19% of today's parents and yet they account for half of our family breakdown. The number of couples getting married has been steadily declining. In 2012, there were 262,240 marriages. That's 262,000. 
compared with 370,000 in 1980. So in a generation, that's 100, nearly 100% reduction, sorry, 100,000 reduction. So Paul Coleridge, a former high court judge who is chairman of the foundation, said the research demonstrated the scale of the human problem behind the statistics. And this problem, this is quoting him, and this problem is only going to get worse if we do not confront the situation and do something to shift attitudes in favor of marriage, he said. He urged politicians to sit up and take note. Now, I haven't watched all the political programs that have been on as we, you know, lead up to this interesting time in our nation uh, on the 7th of May when we all go out and vote. You're going out to vote? Raise your hand if you're voting. That's right. We won't go blue, white, yellow, all the rest of it. Just want to know if you're getting out of there because it's our responsibility. Actually, something like that underlines the responsibility of the church, isn't it, to actually get out and make a difference. And we are uniquely placed, and I really mean this, we are uniquely placed to say something about marriage. Don't disqualify yourself because you might be in your second or even perhaps your third marriage or maybe your first marriage didn't work out. Don't disqualify yourself for that reason. God redeems and God gets you back on track. Okay, but we have something uniquely to, you know, unique to say about this whole area of human relationships. And that's equally true in a sense if you're married or if you're single. Right? Single people, don't leave yourself out here. You can live a joyous, fulfilling life. You can, you're, you're in a mixed community you know, where some are married and some aren't, and that's great. The Bible doesn't make a distinction about how great each kind of lifestyle is. So what I want to do this morning is to, A, well, a couple of things, actually. I want, to, I want us to address a question that we raised when we looked at the equality between men and women. Right, do you remember that? It was about two, almost a couple of years ago now, and we taught the church through to bring us to a place where there was equality in uh, both being and role in the church. In other words, men and women can do exactly the same things in the church. That's the position that we came to. And I think you might have remembered, if your memory's that good, me saying, well, we haven't got time to deal with the issue of men and women, husbands and wives in marriage, but there will come a time when we do it. Well, that time has arrived. The time is now. We've stared into the wormhole and brought it into the future. Okay? Sorry, I didn't need to imply that marriage was a wormhole. But uh, If it is now, it won't be by the end. Okay? Uh, by the end of this morning. I like this story, just to, just to lighten things up a bit. A husband, a husband shopping centre, that's not a husband, that's not a shopping centre where husbands go, which of course doesn't exist, but um, a husband shopping, <laughs> come on, catch up. A husband shopping centre was opened where a woman could choose a husband from a wide selection of men. <laughs> I thought you were just talking about faithfulness, David, you know, so. If you've already got one, it's too late, okay? You can't go back and trade him in. It was laid out in five floors, with the men increasing in positive attributes as you ascended the floors. The only rules were that once you open the door to any floor, you must choose a man from that floor. And if you went up a floor, you couldn't go back down 
except to leave the place. So a couple of girlfriends go to the shopping center to find a husband. First floor. The door has a sign saying, these men have jobs and love kids. The women read the sign and say, well, that's better than not having jobs or not loving kids. But let's see what's further up. Up they go. Second floor. These men have high paying jobs, love kids and are extremely good looking. Mmm, says the girls. But what's further up? Third floor. These men have high paying jobs, are extremely good looking, love kids and help with the housework. We, we are into the realms of fantasy now. <clears throat> wow, says the woman. Very tempting. But there's more further up. And so again, up they go. Fourth floor. These men have high paying jobs, love kids, are extremely good looking, help with the housework and have a strong a romantic streak. <laughs> oh, wow, they exclaim. But just think, what must be waiting us further on? So up they go to the fifth floor. The sign on the door says, this is just to prove that women are impossible to please. Thank you for shopping and have a nice day. (laughs) And I'm sure you could have a wives shopping center that did exactly the same. Just to, just to bring us back to equality. <laughs> so if we can have our first slide, um, Maestro. Oh, and the second one. Yeah. So I just want to take you back to the, those te- that teaching that we did on equality, just to kind of set out the scene before we dive into Ephesians 5. So we kind of established over that period of teaching six particular principles that influenced our thinking and if you're new to the church and have only just arrived then um, you might be able to get these talks somewhere I'm not absolutely sure but uh, if you have any questions about any of this then do see us afterwards but you appreciate that these six principles you know we taught over a a period of time but I hope you get the, the feeling of them one the first one was simply that men and women are joint rulers it's amazing isn't it God gave both men and women dominion over all creation it's our job together to rule over the whole of creation perhaps indeed the whole of the universe who knows what we've got ahead of us in the future right but it was a joint male and female thing that's a huge amount of power and authority isn't it if you're married look at your wife or if your wife look at your husband if you're single look at the men and women around you say you are hugely powerful people God entrusted his world to you. Most of us wouldn't trust each other as far as we could throw it. You know, no, no. <laughs> but God threw us into the world, just to complete the analogy, and uh, gave us this incredible... I mean, that's right at the beginning of Genesis, isn't it? Principle number one. Principle number two. The Holy Spirit gifting has no gender qualification. In other words, every gift that the Holy Spirit gives is open and free to everybody, regardless of your maleness or your femaleness. 
Every passage that you have about Holy Spirit gifts has no gender qualification. We are one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28 is primarily a passage. And, you know, the different sides of this argument, this is a key verse they, they argue about. Here's my take on it. That, it, yes, it is about salvation. We are all one in Christ Jesus. The argument you see will be it's just about salvation. So you can have distinctions in role between men and women. They can do di- different things. It's just that they are equal in terms of salvation. However, although that is true in one sense... Galatians 3.28 is saying we are all one in Christ Jesus, so we have been saved into the body of Christ. Nonetheless, it has implications for all the categories of people like slave and free, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, male and female that are in that verse. So if we are all saved in Christ Jesus... Then the Jew and Gentileness difference begins to disappear, doesn't it? So a uni- an equality of salvation has a knock-on effect into a social distinction, Jew and Gentile. Equally, can it not have a knock-on effect in terms of, yes, men and women are one in Christ Jesus, but it should have something else to say about their relationship and how they operate together. That's all I have on Galatians 3.28. Christ raises both of us up to rule with him. The big issue, isn't it? That men rule, women submit. We'll see that in, in marriage, or we'll see a reference to that in marriage in a moment. But hasn't Christ Jesus raised us up and seated us both with him in heavenly places? Both male and female can't get any higher than that. My life is hidden with Christ in God. I am seated with him in heavenly places. Both men and women can declare that. It doesn't get any higher for you, does it? You see, Christians never look down on anybody because... I mean, never look down on other Christians. Don't look down on anybody, but this this works for Christians, doesn't it? Because you're on the same level. Not leveled down, but leveled up. You live your life before the throne. There is no higher place than the throne of God. There is only one hierarchy in heaven, God and you. All of you. That's amazing, isn't it? I think, here's a little theological insight. I think we've emphasized the death and resurrection so much, and we should do and continue to. That we've forgotten that actually we're not only buried with Christ, not only do we rise with Christ, but we ascended with him into heavenly places. That's where he is now. That's where we are now. Amen? Women lead and teach in the New Testament. We haven't got time to explore that, but if you were here, you know, those years ago, we went through the New Testament. There's all sorts of debate about who does what, you know, whether Phoebe is leading a church or she's leading a small group, whether Junius is an apostle or not, and and that was all great fun to explore. What I would say about this is that what you see in the New Testament is an emerging picture. Some of the reason why there's controversy about what exactly those roles are is because actually you're coming from a deeply, deeply male-dominated society, a patriarchy, as people call it. And the revolutionary gospel of Jesus Christ is actually liberating both men and women into a new order. 
into a new creation. And they, folks, they are struggling with that. You see that throughout the book of Acts and into the epistles, don't you? They're struggling with their freedom. Of course, we don't do that anymore, do we? (laughs) Actually, we do, don't we? We struggle with our freedom. It's great to have freedom, then what you do with it becomes very crucial. So Danny last week, was it last week or the week before, um, you know, was, was talking about how do you lead a powerful and free people? It's much easier when you can tell people what to do. <laughs> but if we're powerful and free, and if you are powerful and free in your marriage relationship or your future marriage relationship, if you're thinking about doing that, then, you know, you've got to work that out, haven't you? And you don't work it out by being less powerful and less free or even less loving. You can get married and still be yourself. But you have to work it out. And you have to compromise and you have to find ways of, of doing that, which will be different to the ways in which you were single. Right? I'm not trying to con- confuse you on that. You know, being, living single is different from living you know, being, being married, but you, but it shouldn't detract. In fact, it should be enhancing who you are. You should be a better person for being married rather than a worse person. You might feel it brings the worst out in you. Uh, well, okay. You know, there is a, there is something in that, but it doesn't have to stay that way. That's the issue, isn't it? You are glorious. Your husband's glorious. Wives, wives, your husband's glorious. Uh, yeah. Husbands, your wives are glorious. Amen. It's only one husband who really believes that. <laughs> I need to go home and meditate on that word, brother, before I give any assent to that. I've got to be sure what I'm committing myself to. My wife is glorious? Okay. <laughs> Shouldn't take too long, should it? <laughs> go on. Turn to her and say, you're glorious. You might have a wife called Glorious. Any, any, any wives called Glory here? No. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Your name is Glory. You made a good choice. Sir. Is that your husband? Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I've married Glory. Woo! Come on. What's your name, sir? Richard. What does, what does Richard mean? Something? What does Richard mean? A rich environment. Look at that. There's glory and a rich environment over there. You guys can... The marriage ceremony will take place over lunch. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you for taking part in that. Thank you. We are a royal priesthood of all believers. So people have looked back into the Old Testament and said, well, you know, the priests were only men. Yes, but there were only also Levi's. There were many other men who were excluded from that. Jesus chose 12 apostles. Yes, he did. He almost had to in that male-dominated society. Neither did he choose Gentiles. Neither did he choose slaves. But the New Testament teaches us that we are all a royal priesthood. Yeah? We all have this function, and that kind of overrides everything else. So those six principles then establish... We have the next slide. We tried to sum this up. We are now committed to seeing men and women developing their calling, gifting, and anointing without restriction, male and female, as joint heirs and joint rulers, royal rulers, 
handling authority (coughs) together in mutual submission in the kingdom. And again, we haven't got time to deal with it. But if you're sitting there thinking, well, what about 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 and the passages in there that tell women to be silent and not to teach or not to teach in certain circumstances, then the way that we're looking at those verses, our hermeneutical approach, that hermeneutics, the interpretation of the Bible, is saying, and this is a desperate, desperate summary, I know, but it's saying that actually what Paul is addressing there is very specific circumstances. He is not actually establishing creation ordinances that mean that women can't teach or lead or indeed can't say anything in church. 1 Corinthians 14, 33 is very interesting, isn't it? Because Paul says women should be silent in church and yet previously in a chapter he's encouraging them to pray and to prophesy. That must be him addressing a particular situation in a particular culture. And so we see those passages as being culturally specific whereas these principles apply everywhere anywhere for all time okay but then let's turn to ephesians chapter 5 then what do we make about what paul says about men and women husbands and wives rather in marriage chapter 5 verse 21 can we have the i think the passage comes up yeah so let's just read it through submit to one another out of reverence for christ Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. If we were going on the husband's shopping center, this would be the sixth floor. (laughs) And the seventh, and the eighth, probably. Okay? It's just a glorious passage, one of the most glorious passages about husband and wife relationships. But it's an absolute minefield of concepts as well isn't it so what i'm going to do now is give you four pieces of a jigsaw and actually i'm not going to i'm not going to set out to determine what you think you've got to take what i say this morning and go away and think about it and come to your own conclusion because there are people on you know in the christian church who will take legitimately different views on this subject and we need to honor that and remember that and Whatever view we particularly take, there are some things which we can all agree about. And in fact, however you see the role of men and women in in marriage, love is usually the answer. Okay, but we'll come to that. So let's take the first part of the jigsaw, which is this word submission. It comes up in verse 21. If we take the next slide. Oh, we've got the next slide. Thank you. 
Submit to one another, in verse 21 it says, out of reverence for Christ. And wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the church as Christ is the head. Uh, sorry, Christ is the head of the church. The head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, yeah. So how do we find submission? Well, uh, Mark Hendley helped me out here. Here's an excellent um, definition of submission. To arrange yourself under someone else. Make yourself subject to another. In other words, submission is always voluntary. It's a, one commentator talks about as lovingly yielding yourself to somebody else. It cannot be demanded. It cannot be enforced. It's something that you give yourself to. It's what you did with Christ, wasn't it? It's what we're constantly, it's the way we live. Now that's a very misunderstood word. But it's the way that we live with Jesus. We are constantly, in response to his love and direction, we're constantly yielding ourselves to him. So submission is actually a very positive, very powerful word. But here's the two views then. One view would take this, that verse 21 where it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, which is clearly a general command or a general instruction to all, everybody in the church, regardless of whether they're male and female. Is verse 21, as it applies to all relationships, including marriages, therefore husbands and wives are called to mutual submission. They just happen to be part of the church. There are single people, there are husbands, there are wives, there are mums, dads, children, etc. Everybody is included in that. And so actually, is it legitimate? In fact... It is entirely legitimate on that instruction for husbands to be submitting to wives anyway. Yes, David, but the husband is the head and the wives are commanded to submit to the husband. So is that kind of a a development of that idea? Well, yes, in one sense it has to be, isn't it? Under that general instruction, it is something that, uh, you know, is, is applied to the marriage situation, but Here's the difference then. Is it just a general rule? Everybody submits to one another. So husbands, you submit to your wives. Wives, you submit to your husbands. Or under that general rule, is there a specific difference in the husband and wife relationship? Now, at this stage, I don't think you can tell from the text which of those two is true. So we did say this is a jigsaw puzzle. There you go. First bit of the jigsaw puzzle. Okay, Ready for the next bit? Let's go on to the next slide. Headship. What is this thing called headship? If husbands have it, what is it? Is the husband, husband's headship and wife's submission, are they established here by a theological principle? That's what we've got to ask ourselves about everything, isn't it? I refer to 1 Timothy 2, if you're not familiar with that. Uh, many people think that's establishing a theological or creation principle for women not teaching. I don't agree with that, but that was another example of it. Here we have Paul saying, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 22, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. That's our example. So the husband must be the head of his wife because he's being compared to Jesus who is the head of the church. However, if you turn over in your Bibles to chapter 6, verse 5, we have Paul saying the same idea when it comes to slavery. 
So here's chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Uh, And he goes on. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes are on you, but slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your hearts. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not men, because you know the Lord will reward everyone for what good he does, whether he is slave or free. Is Paul, here's the question, establishing men as head over women on a theological principle in the same way as he is establishing masters over slaves with a theological principle? If he is doing those, then why don't we still have slavery? Or why don't we still, actually we still have slavery. There are reputedly more slaves alive today than there were, you know, in Wilberforce's time or even in the time in the New Testament, which is a shocking kind of revelation in our world, isn't it? But most of us, I think, would agree that slavery on other Christian principles is not something that we would wish to support today. Amen? Can you all raise your hands for that? If you want to re-establish slavery, then uh, there isn't a political party at the moment you can vote for to get that, but you might need to start your own. Okay? And, uh, okay, so, so if Paul establishes slavery in that way on a theological principle, what's going on then when he seems to be establishing husband's headship on a theological principle in a very similar way? Here's one approach to it. One approach is to say, well, Paul is confronted with these kind of social structures. Husbands clearly, in those times, were heads of their families. And wives submitted, in fact, they submitted in probably quite terrible ways in which we would not countenance today. And certainly Paul is trying to address that situation by telling husbands to love their wives. That sounds patently obvious to us today, but actually was a revolutionary thing when your wife was no better than your property. She was a bag of chattels that you could trade in. You could go and get a new one, right? That's how, generally speaking, even in Judaic, you know, sort of society, certainly in Roman and Greek society, that's how, you know, women were property, as were children, as were slaves. So Paul is addressing a very kind of different social situation to the one we have today. So he inevitably says... It's not that Paul necessarily is supporting slavery, but Paul isn't a, about to bring about a violent revolution. And so the best way that slaves can behave in those times was simply to obey their masters. And of course, Paul has instructions for the masters as well. And Paul actually lays almost like a, a, a detonator under slavery. If you read the story of Philemon, you know that Philemon, who you know, has a slave, is encouraged to have Onesimus, his slave, back uh, you know, as a brother. Not just a slave, but a brother. And so Paul it actually is undermining the whole social structure of slavery. And actually, if you're careful reading this passage in Ephesians, you realize he's doing exactly the, the same with slavery here as well. Because if masters are to recognize that he and their slave have the same master, that's Jesus, that's a totally revolutionary thing to declare. 
because now a master who's used to telling his slave how to do things is now subject to a higher authority. That authority is the same Lord and Savior of his slave as it is of him. So, is Paul addressing a cultural situation here where men have headship and wives submit submit so it's just normal for him to say of course you should be doing that but if society is going to change and if men and women husbands and wives rather come into a more egalitarian atmosphere do this does the same principle apply that's the question that you need to ask yourself that i'm not going to give you the answer to (laughs) directly Think about that one. For instance, if you were preaching the gospel in a society, and there are many societies in the 21st century that are male-dominated, would you do the same as Paul does? Or would you be instructing wives, wives, you're totally equal, your husband, you know, he can't, he's not your head, you know, just establish total equality. Well, you know, some women in those circumstances wouldn't last very long. Seriously. In other words, is there a way of taking the gospel and applying it into different circumstances, even today, where Paul would be saying exactly the same thing? And I believe there, there certainly would be. That was the second piece of the jigsaw. Ready for the third? So we had submission. We've dealt a little bit with headship. We haven't defined headship because Paul is about to define headship for us. Okay, let's get on the next side. Oh, yeah, headship as defined. <laughs> Uh, headship defined as love, yeah. Was there one before that? Oh, we've done headship. Headship defined as love is the next one, yeah? I've got that. Oh, oh there you are, yeah. Sorry, yeah. It was the one before. Thank you. This is an amazing passage, isn't it? Husbands, you ready for this? All you've got to do is love your wife like Christ loved the church. This is the seventh floor, isn't it? <laughs> Make her holy. Uh, How did Christ love the church? He gave himself for her, verse 25, 26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of the body. For this... Reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. Two right ears. (laughs) But this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. The husband has to do about ten things and the wife only has to do one. How fair is that? (laughs) Very fair. Now, although Paul is addressing particularly husbands here, Right? It doesn't mean that wives, you can't, I mean, you are Christians, yeah? <laughs> Just remember that. You are imitators of God, chapter, you know, chapter four, chapter five in this same book. You're imitators of God, so live a life of love. Here's Paul defining love, probably primarily here for husbands, but equally that applies to wives. Okay? He does all the loving, you just say, okay, thanks. <laughs> it's not quite like that. But isn't it interesting, because the word headship, so for us, is so often associated with 
the boss. And the one opportunity that Paul takes in his epistles to define it for us, he defines it as love, 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 love. It's not just the seventh floor, it's on the roof. In fact, it's not even on the roof, it's up in the sky, isn't it? You are totally glorious. And husbands, your job is to make your wife totally glorious. To make her radiant, without spot or wrinkle. Well, mate. That's a lot of applications. No, no, no. <laughs> Whatever those things mean. I mean, in a sense, we haven't got... But just, you know, I'd love to unpack this a bit more. But just, just keep this in mind. Just ask yourself the question. What does it mean for me to treat my wife gloriously? Wives, what does it mean to treat your husband gloriously? Because actually, as we well know in this church, you are, you are living with royal people. They are glorious. And husbands and wives, you need to get that deep in your heart that you are glorious. Because the way that you treat yourself will be the way that you treat other people. And isn't it interesting here that Paul says, nobody ever hated his own buddy. So husbands, love your wives like you would love yourself. Well, that precede, you know, what's got to precede is that is that you love yourself. It's okay to love yourself. That's not a selfish act. I'm not saying you can't be selfish. Yes, you can be selfish. But actually, loving who you are is totally biblically legitimate. Because if you don't love who you are, how on earth will you love the other person like you love yourself? Well, if you don't love yourself, it's less likely, not inevitable, but less likely you're going to love as fully as otherwise you would have done the other person in your life. In uh, Timothy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, he says this, talking about his wife. He says, my wife Kathy often says that most people, when they are looking for a spouse, are looking for a finished statue. When they, this is when you first went out with her. All right, no, no. When, when they should be looking for a wonderful block of marble. Not so you can create the person you want, but rather because you see what kind of person Jesus is making. When Michelangelo was asked how to carve his magnificent David, his reply is reputed to have been, I looked inside the marble and just took away the bits that weren't David. When looking for a marriage partner, each must be able to look inside the other and see what God is doing and be excited about being part of the process of liberating the emerging new you. And then he goes on to quote C.S. Lewis. If we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us, of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long in parts and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in, uh, that's, that is what we are in for. Nothing less. The amazing thing in this is husbands and wives, single people, whoever you are, God is doing an amazing work in you, isn't he? 
God is making you. Husbands, that makes your life easier. You don't just say, well, God's doing all I don't need to bother. Okay? You are, you are co-partnering husbands and wives with one another to make each other glorious. As indeed you are in the church as a whole. Last piece of the jigsaw. Or is. That's it, isn't it? Oh, that looks like a mixture. Okay, we'll run with that. Um, my notes say mutual submission on the top, but number four, just just take away headship defined as love, because that was the last slide, yeah? Nod. I need your reassurance. <laughs> okay, that should read mutual submission. I don't want to give you, uh, I, I'm now giving you Dave Webster's view. Okay, so we've had some parts of the jigsaw puzzle. In a sense, this is another one, and it may seem like a bias towards a view that husbands and wives live in a relationship of mutual submission. That actually, I'd probably believe that, you know, Paul was addressing a cultural situation, but he was laying a foundation for a, uh, a, a sense of mutual submission between husbands and wives. That's probably where I am. I'm telling you that up front so that you can still go away and think about it yourself and don't just simply get persuaded by me. Okay? Why do I believe that? Well, because husbands, your job, however you define your headship, is actually to raise your wife up to the place where you are. Jesus did that. You ascended with him into heaven and were seated with him in heavenly places. If you want to love your wife like Jesus loved his wife, raise your wife up to be a joint ruler with you, to live in mutual submissive partnership with you leadership is still required husbands you might be thinking or even wise well who's leading this place now who's dealing with the kids who's deciding the budget who decides who we vote for in the election election and whether we're going to stay where we're going to have a referendum from europe which is usually me but <laughs> okay who makes all those decisions folks you're still leading your family you are still leading one another. Leadership is still part of it. Very much part. In fact, in fact, it's a it's almost a more it is a more difficult way to lead. Just ask the directors of this church, you know, all seven all, all eight of them. They are now leading together as equals. Together. That makes for quite long meetings at the moment. So do pray for us. <laughs> The objection to, well, I, for mutual submission might, well, well can, how can you have a 50-50 marriage? Well, I'm not saying that's easy. And you might opt not to have a 50-50 marriage, so that in a sense, headship is defined as having the last words. Not saying that's not a legitimate uh, opinion to have. But if you were to say, well, can you, how can you have a 50-50 marriage? Well, earlier in Ephesians, Paul says, make every effort to maintain the unity. In this church, you've got eight directors maintaining the unity. So two people, that's a doddle. <laughs> Get the maths. I mean, it's all about maths, isn't it? <laughs> Obviously, it's not all about maths. It's hard work, isn't it? But in a religion that is actually soaked in grace, and actually need a lot of grace in marriage, a religion that, like ours that is soaked in grace. An epistle like Ephesians that exemplifies the grace of God in its teaching. 
Here's this wonderful verse. Make every effort. <sighs> I thought effort went out the window. We don't need good works to, you know, to justify us before God. That's absolutely right. Yes. But grace empowers you to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit, which is equally true for the body of Christ and church life as it is in the husband and wife relationship. You need to make every effort. Honor makes this possible, doesn't it? Wives, honor your husbands. Husbands, honor your wives. Simple definition of honor, hold them very highly. Because actually they're very high people. They don't get any higher because they've ascended with Christ and are seated with him in heavenly places. And actually, the sign just appeared. Whether you take a view that ultimately the husband is the head of the family or whether you take a view about mutual submission, it will probably look the same. I say probably, it depends how you interpret it and how you put those things into practice, isn't it? Let me finish with one very intriguing verse. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 to 4. And my title for this is, Who is is the head in the bed? This is the Bible. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 and 4 says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Such an old-fashioned way. This is the English standard version. I mean, how many people use the word conjugal? Sexual rights in marriage. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So in the intimacy of marriage, you are in a total state of mutual submission. I don't know any other greater expression in the Bible, maybe the Song of Solomon is like this, of mutual submission than this, do you? You've got authority over me and I've got authority over you. How do we work that out? Well, go home tonight and work it out. (laughs) In the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. We'll finish there.